Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Stella! Hello there, how's it going? It's going well. You look bright and lovely. <laughs> I was I was told by a, a, a very visually astute person to change my desk around. And since I did, loads of people have said I look well. And I'm like, this is a little bit embarrassing. Because <laughs> I'd usually be sitting just there. Like, so I yeah, I thought you were like it. in a, a totally new part of your house. I was imagining you were somewhere very different. But then you told me you simply like rotated where you were sitting. And you look amazing. Yeah. And the light is beautiful and looks fabulous. And in fairness... In fairness, the person who told me to move, they had it better. It was a little bit over to there and it was a beautiful backdrop. I know that sounds little, but it was actually very curated. But I couldn't I couldn't live with being asymmetric because I'm oh. really a bit neurotic. <laughs> I, I have to have my desk straight. So so I haven't followed all the rules, but I've improved it. Are you in yes. your new house? I am. Yes, we moved uh, about a week and a half ago. I'm in my new office. I've set myself up. I made sure that everything behind me looks good. Um, but frankly, we, it, it, we set up really fast. So yeah, it's been great. It looks very similar. Was that desky thing that was behind the last time? My, my bookshelf yeah. was uh, kind of to the side of me before, but you could see it in the back. This office is a bit smaller, so I got one bookshelf in here and another bookshelf is elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, I'm up against a window, so this is great for lighting. It's a cozy little room, so it's perfect for recording and podcasting and videoing and such things. So yeah, it's, they, been a, it's been a lovely move. Has it? Because they say yeah. it's one of the most stressful. I remember when you moved from Texas to Phoenix. That felt yeah, it was stressful. There were, I mean, there's stress involved, but we had a little overlap. So we were able to bring over things on our own and then movers came and got like the big stuff. So we really hustled and I pulled my forearm moving somehow. So like I have this excruciating pain here. It's like I cannot pick anything up like this, which is super weird. I have like the most Whoa. bizarre injury. So I have to like carry my water bottle in this hand instead of this hand. But okay. I'm still still getting at it, still trying to work out, do normal things. Um, we have a lot going on aside from just our setups and our visuals today. I know. It's so Yeah, it's I so know. Crazy. Well, we should probably start by talking about the live stream that we're going to be doing in Killarney. I know. I'm very excited and very, very, very nervous because I don't trust technology. I, I have the makings of a witch and I think I, I do things to technology that other people seem to do. I just sometimes think that's my witch quality. I don't know. I shut down technology. But yes, we are going to have our live stream of Gender Wider Lens is going on tour. Our world tour. Yes. To County Kerry, Ireland. Yeah, to a little picturesque town in Ireland. A yeah. very, very pretty town where we're going to have the conference this time next week when, when we go. And um, yeah, I, it's going to be a live stream and we'll be from the conference. Everybody in the conference will be there. And it's going to be funny, Sasha, because we'll be talking. Well, I say this secretly as if I'm just talking to you, but we'll be talking about <laughs> the people. You know, we'll be talking about the conference yeah. while they'll be sitting there looking at us. So I'll say, oh, what do you think of Ken Zucker there, Sasha? And you'll be able to say, well, I thought his talk was this and that and the other. I love but Ken because he'll get up and he'll be like, I would like to object to everything you said <laughs> in Ken fashion because he's the best. He's hilarious and so wonderful. Yeah. yeah, And he's so straight. I remember he said to me, Stella, you're being, you're, Stella, you're being naive, and naive and idealistic. And I'll tell you why the next time I speak to you. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's so great. It's going to be amazing because there's going to be so many thought provoking conversations and like discussions from different perspectives. Like you said, this is not just going to be a conference with everyone coming from the culture perspective or the psychological perspective. There are going to be competing theories about what's going on with gender dysphoria and detransition. And we will be able to kind of reflect at least on some of it because our our Mm. live stream will take place kind of towards the end of the second day and it's just going to be really highly stimulating environment and there's going to be a lot to talk about and i'm thrilled to have a live stream we'll be talking i suppose helen joyce will have spoke maya will have spoke the detransitioners panel oh michael biggs will have spoken i bet you his will be brilliant stephanie davis of rye and Sue Evans, there's going to be some great talks and they'll all yeah. have spoken. And then uh, we'll still to have, it will still be faced with on front of us will be the feminist angle, the legal angle, the educational angle. That's more on Saturday, but loads, the medical and the psychological and the sociological will be done. Oh, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'm thrilled. That's going to be great. If, what do you if, have going on in Stella land aside from this huge conference? Um... This huge conference has taken up <laughs> my brain, really. I know. It's like <laughs> epic. I'm like, what else are you doing? But you did also just publish your book in, in, in the UK, you. right? It published yeah. it or in Ireland. Yeah, and you know what? We got in the bestsellers in Ireland for last week and this week. So. Oh. Yeah. Number, I think it was number three last week and number nine this week. Wow. Good job. Congrats. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Thrilled, thrilled, thrilled. Yeah. Thrilled. Really That's awesome. Yeah. And I know it was were... a, kind of stressful. You did a ton of interviews and lots of back and forth. Yeah, it was. I found, yeah. found the last couple of months pretty intense. But me and you are finishing our gender book, which I think is going to be yes. a cracker. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll be meeting this weekend for final edits. Yeah. Final edits. One of my favorite phrases in the world. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I have some stuff going on too. So I'm kind of revamping my YouTube channel. It was the kind of neglected, uh, forgotten about. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Very, very neglected, like sweeping floors behind me. And I was not thinking about her at all. Is that what Cinderella did? I don't know. Um, Oh, she was neglected (laughs) and underappreciated. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to release clips from my membership group once a week. So I kind of extract a small clip from one of my main topic videos or, um, kind of discussion videos, and I've been posting it in YouTube. And I think, um, it's been really nice to just be more consistent, putting material out there. And that way people can get a sense of what I do, you know, behind that, um, kind of wall of my membership group. So if people, parents are interested, this is really focused on like how parents can support themselves, how they can support their kids. And if you want to get a little glimpse of what that looks like, you can go to my YouTube and check it out. And then if people are interested, they can join my group. And I talked um, in my most recent topic video about influence, high control groups, um, undue influence cults, you know, like I try to avoid the oh, word wow. cult because yeah. even that term has a lot of competing definitions, but just, you know, lots of families have reflected that there's something unusual about the way my child suddenly adopted a very, very, very different radical, uh, identity. And also a whole worldview has changed. Like this kid has changed a lot. Um, yeah. So anyway, I talked a little bit about influence and groups this past um, month. So it's, it was how, interesting. how long is the videos on the YouTube? They range from, I would say, maybe four minutes to 12 to 15 minutes. Um, so they're pretty significant. But like a lot of the meat kind of goes on behind my parent membership group where I offer like concrete kind of solutions and advice. Because I've been doing something different. Um, I've been kind of putting out stuff on Instagram, and then it gets I saw put that. out. Yeah, they're little, they're yeah. little clips. The yeah. person who's in charge was saying, like, keep them short. You know, just just make one point, just make one point. So I've been putting them out, and um, it's been amazing. I've been stunned at the response. Good. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been stunned at people's re- response to. Are them. you on TikTok too? I feel like well, I heard you say well, that. Well, there's a story there. I was okay. on TikTok, and honestly, I was doing really, really well. And it, one of one of my videos got over a hundred thousand views. 
Oh my gosh. I know. And but my what daughter, happened? My daughter, very nicely, like in fairness, it's not easy being a kid with a mother like me. And she said, <laughs> she said it very nicely. She says, any chance you're going off TikTok, she says. And Why? Like, Is it crossing said, paths with like her friends? Like, are they yeah. seeing your videos? She's waiting for people to see my videos. She's waiting for it to be brought up. And I kind of looked at her thinking, like, she's been very decent and she's asking yeah. in a decent way. And it was negotiable. Like, she wasn't saying, yeah. get off. She was like, is there any chance you just don't oh. do TikTok? And I thought, in all decency, in all, if I'm going to be an honorable person, Fair oh. enough. TikTok is a teenager's platform. I am intruding. It's effectively. I said to her, well, I don't do any dances or anything. That <laughs> <laughs> didn't watch. I just felt like it is her medium. And it's almost like she's hanging out in a cafe and I'm totally. going down. Yeah. And you're I like just, the entertainment. You're like singing at the cafe. She's going to be like, oh, yeah. like, yeah. Because like, you're, yeah. you're not just having a TikTok to observe. You are producing content for the TikTok. At the time I was on a real high because it's not only that video that went well. There's a few others that were up 60, 70,000. So I was like, I thought I was a TikTok queen at the time. And she, <laughs> said, she said, I'm kind of waiting for people to, to find it, people from school to find it. And she goes, it's making me kind of slightly dread them finding it. I thought I wouldn't like that if I was her. So it's like me singing mom. in the cafe and her friends haven't figured out that I'm singing in the cafe, but they're about. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I thought I'll do the noble thing. <laughs> I so wasn't very was there noble. a trade? Did, did you ask her for anything in return? I, I, well, no, before we think, I, uh, before we beatify me, I wasn't that perfectly noble. I went private and I haven't added any more videos. So okay. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I just shut You're it down. On the down low, your TikTok on the down. So that that was my TikTok life. <laughs> <laughs> a moment you had a fifteen minutes of fame on TikTok. Yeah, right. I, I maybe maybe someone. there will be a an encore. Maybe you can have a disguise and go back on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. We'll so see. then I put those little videos on YouTube to see. I haven't checked. I have. I've been pretty. I haven't checked to see how they've done. But at least I've started kind of because I think the video things can be really helpful. Just I've had so many lovely comments. Yeah. Thought, oh, yeah, That's it's been nice. really surprising. But yeah. um, there's also Geta have yes. entered our lives. Yeah. Yes, more so formally. We a really meaty episode. We have a really yes. meaty episode. Yes, but yes, I don't want to miss this whole the arrival of Geta. <laughs> Yes. So Geta is officially one of our sponsors now. We are thrilled to have them. They're, you know, they're a great organization, if we can say so ourselves, since we partly founded them. <laughs> partly founded yeah. Geta. And actually, really quick, there's an, a really interesting workshop happening tomorrow when this episode goes out. Eileen Philipson is running a, a webinar called Gender Trouble, Authoritarianism, and the Flight from Womanhood. So she's talking about like postmodern ideas about gender and how they've kind of come into to the public square and what that means for professionals, um, organizations, therapists, etc. So this is going to be a really good webinar. So if anybody out there is curious, you can go to getagenderexploratory.org, right? And, uh, dot yep. com, sorry, genderexploratory.com and That's check it out. So yeah, you can uh, go to this amazing webinar with Eileen Philipson. Yeah, yeah. And we're very, very delighted to have Geta as part of our, kind of as part of our thing. Yeah. Um, we've been, you know, thrilled to have Rhyme, thrilled to have Jen Specht, and now we have Geta as well. And yeah. uh, I'm sure there's, there's Coca-Cola's on the way. <laughs> <laughs> and Pepsi, they're going to fight over, fight over their sponsorship spot. Yeah. <laughs> but let's get into this episode, because I think this is going to be really interesting. I can't believe we haven't done this episode before. I know we say that a lot. There's so many topics. So today the, the vision is, and you add in if, if you think I'm missing something, the vision is we have talked a lot on this show about why we don't think the affirmation model is great. We've mentioned it. We've alluded to it. We've criticized it, but we never really flushed out what it is. If you yeah. hear affirmation therapy, what does that actually mean? What are the implications and how does it look in practice when a clinician um, kind of follows the affirmation model? This is the model, at least in the US and up until recently parts of Europe as well, that is the primary 
referred to way that you're supposed to work with, quote, gender nonconforming and transgender diverse children, right? So what does that mean? And what do we think about it? And what's the issue? And how does this affirmative model contribute to what we believe we're seeing, which is kids slipping right under the radar with really serious mental health issues that go untreated in lieu of just affirming gender and medically transitioning. Yeah. And so the affirmative model, it's more than anything, it's the new kid in town. It it came in without, from what I could see, without uh, a kind of any sort of evidence-based theory that, you know, there wasn't a, a theory, you know, somebody who brought forward an idea that we should try and then we kind of, you know, there wasn't, let's say John Cabot's in, he brought in mindfulness because he was mm. working in stress clinics and then he, he kind of used some of his kind of what he'd learned from being in India and he brought it and then he developed a model and he called it mindfulness-based stress reduction. So that's how the model, he used it in residential clinics, then came out and said, I have a model, this is what it is. And it was called MBS or mindful-based stress reduction. It's a model, it's an approach, it's a thought. So the affirmative didn't have any of that. It just seemed to kind of arrive without very much nobody really heralded it nobody said hey i've got this amazing work i've been doing for the last 10 years and now i'm bringing it to the world yeah there wasn't a lot of kind of on the ground testing with long-term evaluation of outcomes and things like that i think it was one of those and i do think the field of counseling is susceptible to this you know, there's a theory that is based on a, an idea or a conception of of an internal state, which is really hard to actually test sometimes. You know, oh, certain yeah. types of therapies lend themselves oh, better yeah. to outcome testing. And I think if you have a theory of identity, you can work with it. I mean, I'm sure Dr. Diane Ehrensapt has been working in this way for many years, but is there a rigorous process to test whether or not the assumptions in the model are accurate or whether or not this is required? Not really. But I want to, you know, just kind of touch on something because you made a really good point about, you know, so, like sometimes people argue what's happening in gender medicine is unlike any other kind of treatment protocol for young people. And on the other hand, what's weird about it is that it's it's a combination of mental health and identity theories and medicine. So you're combining kind of like two types of fields that operate separately. And you pointed out that in some ways, affirming a person in the context of therapy is actually quite boilerplate. So, you know, being an affirmative therapist, like if you look at, a, you know, papers or Uh, guidelines around affirmative therapy, usually they start out with like a long list of definitions based on almost like Tumblr speak, right? (laughs) Uh, What is gender non-binary? What is cisgender? What is heteronormativity? Like gender queer? So you're first asked to learn all of this language and what it means, which makes sense if you have a client that's going to come in using a bunch of labels and definitions, you want to know what they're talking about. But it also is kind of saying to the clinician, you know, use your self-reflection about your own bias. Like if you have a negative feeling towards this identity or that identity, like understand that that is an ingrained kind of heteronormative, gender normative bias. Um, They often require or not require, but like request that the clinician almost gets involved politically. Like gender affirmative therapy kind of goes hand in hand with like an activist or social justice advocacy perspective Um, and there's a real emphasis on normalization and non-judgment like if a person comes in with let's say a non-binary gender identity that is really hard to fit into a category the clinician is supposed to put aside their suspicions about this or their questions about this or their discomfort about this and recognize those as bias and then just be like open to letting the client teach you in a way. So like it's very, very take a back seat, client led. And that's the foundation of these affirmative therapies. Which is really interesting for for about a hundred reasons. Um, <laughs> for, for starters, I think, you know, affirmative 
therapy, because that's what it's called at this stage, or the affirmative care. It, it's it's effectively it came from as far as I can see, we affirmed, you know, it, it kind of it was a descriptive word. It was mm. just affirming. And it was kind of rooted in if, if you had somebody who was gay or bisexual or or, or, or or lesbian, they would be affirmed. And somewhere along the way, it slid into this was an approach to use for gender. I still haven't got to the root of when and how that happened, but it seems to have been something around the 90s and the noughties mm-hmm. that kind of happened. But there was something else happening within the counselling industry, which is very relevant, which is like from the 70s onwards, Carl Rogers, he, he's a great American psychologist and he... He had a, a model. He had, you know, it's it's called different different things. Some people call it humanistic. Yeah. Some people call it person-centered. Some people call it client-centered. But Carl Rogers brought in this concept where all all the therapist had to do, and it's huge in Ireland, by the way, person-centered counselling. Yeah. All, all the therapist has to do is create the right environment and then the client will work it out. So what uh, my job as a therapist, when I was doing my degree, I, it was completely, it was supposed to be integrated, but it was very heavily rooted in the Carl Rogers theory, mm. which is you just have to create this space, which is showing positive, unconditional regard, showing congruence, showing kind of empathy and being authentic. Now, authentic as well as positive, con- unconditional regard. And, um, you know, it, it's... A, Arguably, is it human even to be able to do that with every person mm. that you meet? But that was the kind of the grand plan. It's really lovely. I think Carl Rogers would have been brilliant at it. I've seen enough videos of him. He could do it. And um, a certain therapist can do it. A huge amount of people who are listening here today will say, oh, I got one of those therapists. Because if you were to critique person-centered counselling, you would say, well, they were very, very nice they agreed with everything. They didn't challenge me. It was a very pleasant place. And that's what he said. I said, I, he said, I want to create a safe harbour. And if you create a safe harbour, the client is expert of themselves. Mm-hmm. And from there, they will have the kind of after trauma, they will have the space to go, go forth and be themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a lovely plan. And that was the plan. When I went into a more rigorous kind of um you know, people critiquing it. And then I did end up doing a master's in CBT. People were, were, were quite derogatory of it. And they called it mm. the nodding dog style of therapy, mm-hmm. where basically your therapist was nodding along. And you know, and I know if we go and see a friend and we're in high emotion and if they just agree with everything, they don't challenge. Sometimes it's very pleasant, but sometimes it lacks. It's like, mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. want to know what you think, Sasha. I'm really mm-hmm. worried. What's I, I respect you or like I'm things. spinning out of control. I yeah. need help. Like yeah. I don't know how to get myself out of this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what you want is some sort of return on the uh, the person you're listening to. You want some sort of response, like a feedback. Yeah, and I, yeah. you know, the way I have often said in my twenties, I trailed around. I felt I, I met a lot of person-centered counselors and I didn't need it. I, I do, it just didn't really do it for me. I was, I was chatting away to them and they were very pleasant. It was all very nice. You couldn't say you disliked the therapist. The therapist was lovely. But many people have come to me over the years saying, I had a very nice therapist, but nothing changed. It just, I went there and it became actually a very un, unhelpful a coping mechanism because frankly I vented every week and mm. I didn't have to change my life I didn't do anything mm. I just vented mm-hmm. it was a way of keeping me in my in my un- dysfunctional position because I just kept mm. on giving out pretending I was doing something it's very insidious to pretend you're making progress but you're actually not when you look at person centered which started in the 70s it's, it's huge in Ireland and then CBT came in which was kind of the opposite which is going to very vigorous and a very mm. has its own problems. We'll go into it another day, but it's very fra- I feel the affirmative care model is very rooted in that person-centered mentality, which is the client is expert of themselves, even if they're having a psychotic breakdown. Mm-hmm. What mm. we do is nod along and say yes, um, and we give them this empathy and positivity, and we are just almost witness. We're bearing witness. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yes, you're totally right. That's the the root of it. 
But the way it has evolved is even a step further from that. There is a real activist component of the affirmative care model. You know, nowhere in any of the documents that I reviewed kind of in preparation for this was there like, you should remain neutral and um, not interject your values or opinions. In fact, it's the opposite. Educate yourself on oppression. Like literally a lot of these documents say like you need to learn about LGBTQ oppression and you actually need to advocate for your client. Like one of the the, the documents I looked at said, you know, make sure your bookshelf is covered with LGBT reading material and talk to your client about your activism. Like that's what it says. So this make goes sure way your beyond. Or your, your client's office. What do they mean? Make sure your bookshelf in your office is Ooh, full your of like shelf. LGBT. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. And there was, and I remember, you know, when we wrote the, um, we co-wrote these chapters for the CTA oh, yeah. book. One thing that was remarkable, um, the APA put out like a guideline on working with transgender and non-binary or non-conforming people. And one of the things I thought was interesting is it said somewhere like, even if you have lesbian, gay or bisexual clients, they may not know about the way that different gender identity labels could apply to them. So we recommend that you educate your gay, lesbian, and bisexual clients about transgender identities and how, you know, internalized transphobia could make it possible that they don't identify as trans. So like, this is a real, almost proselytizing to people about identity. Well, you're right, because like the affirmative didn't start with that. The affirmative was you affirm, you affirm yeah. what the person comes in. It's shifted. It's shifted. And I used to say, you know, they've moved from affirm to confirm, as in you give them imprimatur, you actually yes. confirm their identity, which I didn't think was a, certainly it's going outside the role of the therapist, because our role, like you said, is to be neutral, to kind mm-hmm. of pull back and let, let the client work it out and maybe ask thought provoking questions, yeah. which now that we've gone through this creep of what is affirmative, apparently for some people, not for everybody, but for some people, they could argue, oh, no, thought provoking questions is provocative as opposed yeah. to thought provoking. Now, I, 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 you know, back in the day when I was studying Carl Rogers, you know, a, a key kind of component of it was Socratic questioning which is yeah. basically thought-provoking. That was a key component. While you were a presence and you were a very empathic, warm presence, your job was to provoke thought. And yeah. the affirmative is not that. It's not telling you to, to provoke thought. Instead, it's saying, as you said, proselytizing. It's like, mm-hmm. actually, have you heard the latest? Yes. Have you heard the yeah. good news about <laughs> trans like identities? I mean, it, it's... Um, when you were talking about qu- questions, Stella, I was thinking about like times in my life when I have felt most alive intellectually is when something that I thought about myself or the world has suddenly been kind of revealed to me not to be true through yeah. the process of like really like someone will say something and I'll be like, oh, that didn't feel right. Like, screw that person. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just think about it and I'll be like, crap, I think they have a point. And then, you know, when you start to go through that process, and that's, I think, the goal of Socratic questioning to really yeah. examine, like, why do I think the way that I think? What are my underlying assumptions? That's how you actually become wiser and you grow and you learn something. And so I think the fact that, affirmative therapy dissuades clinicians from asking questions that that might be uncomfortable for a person to hear is really troubling now well, yeah yeah that, that that's a really good point because you know there's a difference between a therapeutic process and a therapeutic support yeah. and samaritans if you bring the samaritans they'll give you therapeutic support now they will not be mm. um trained therapists so it's it's a short course and it's very, very comforting. And you'd ring them up, you'd say, I'm in deep distress and they will make an awful lot of very gentle, soothing words and noises and comments and phrases. They'll, they'll reflect back what you've said, but they will never add anything new because they're therapeutic support. Is and Samaritans like kind of like a crisis hotline? That do you not have Samaritans? Call? 
I'm we might, but maybe I'm just like not oh. aware of it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we probably and, do. I'm just also like really bad at like understanding the culture around me yeah, sometimes. They are they are the crisis line. Um, I would have thought they were global. I haven't a notion if they are or not, but they're certainly okay. in Ireland and England. Okay, and, so it's a crisis uh, yeah. line. Crisis yeah. line. Yeah. But, um, and there's a lot of people would get trained for for this, you know, for these crisis lines, and okay. so. Um, w when they do offer it, it, it has its place and it's a very important place and it's great that it's there, but they are definitely trained within their realm. Like, don't go out of it. Don't start trying to give them therapy. That's not what you're there for. Yeah. And that's fine. When you go to therapy, you're supposed to go to the therapeutic process where you are expecting a lot more than support. Yes, yeah. you will support but you'll also get other things and that lovely phrase you know about therapy which was you know that um for example you know a certain type of therapy is necessary but not sufficient as in mm -hmm. yeah of course you have to give kyle rogers you know lovely empathic kind of um conditions so you know a, a critic a critic of carl rogers said yeah you know person-centered approach is necessary but it's not sufficient you need to give more you know what I mean? And it was a very interesting phrase that I always kind of thought about. You know what I mean? As a phrase, necessary but not sufficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure you're empathic and authentic and all that. Go on, you're done. But also, well, because I'm, I'm just thinking about the underlying assumptions here, and I think we should circle back and kind of extract some. I like this necessary but not sufficient. So mm. I'm just going to pretend that I'm a clinician who's been working in the gender field for a long time. And so far, I've just been neutral, right? Okay. And all I've done is like nod along and agree. Somebody who has more of an activist perspective might come and advise me, the clinician, say, you know, what you're doing is necessary but not sufficient. You actually do have to go above and beyond. And what I mean by that is breaking down the gender binary. Like that's something I saw in a lot of affirmative documents. Okay. You need to question hetero and cis normativity. You need to get more politically involved. So I 100% agree with you, but I guess it depends on how you look at it. Okay, well, that is not how I looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at it as in it's not deep enough. As in, you know, you know, we, we humans were complex. And it's, you know, before we started, you know, I mentioned, you know, like psychoanalysis, you know, when Freud was once uh, in, in a restaurant and he was smoking a cigar and uh, one of his one of his um, merry men, one of the Freudians said, oh, I see you're smoking a very large cigar. And Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> Not everything is symbolic. And um, arguably the psychoanalyst in our lives will probably give out to me for this, but arguably psychoanalysis might always uh, see symbolic meaning in everything you do. Yeah. And sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes there is no symbolism in it. But then the opposite of that could be affirmative, which is I'll take everything you say at face value and I won't see any hidden meaning. So yeah. therapists back in the day or psychoanalysts, they, they, they always saw hidden meaning, which must be, I have often talked to clients and just people in general about therapy and they find it a little bit uncomfortable because you know, they're like, these therapists are always reading into everything you say. Mm. It's kind of a little bit distasteful. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we're there with a, 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 a mental microscope into everything you say. Oh, that's what you say. And yeah. we kind of do approach life like that, but I think it could feel very intrusive and frankly a bit icky that somebody yeah. is always thinking your your hidden meaning. But the affirmative yeah. is the opposite. It's whatever yeah. you say goes. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. 
Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organisation dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. So what are, let's, let's try okay. to imagine, what are the assumptions in the affirmative model? So if, if you have a, a therapy model that says, the first thing you need to understand is that there is cis-heteronormativity, there's oppression, people suppress their true identities. These are all the lists of gender identities. People are experiencing distress because basically of minority stress model, like the distress yep. is because you haven't been accepting enough. And your job as an affirmative therapist is to learn about the kind of socio-political implications of this and affirm your clients, like support whatever gender non-conforming and trans clients say about their identity, even if it makes no sense, even if they say they have 10 gender identities or they're not gender fluid minute to minute, doesn't matter. Your own bias is the reason that doesn't make sense to you. So like educate yourself. That's the model. What are the built-in assumptions? Oh yeah, keep going, go. No matter what age, key line yeah. in the affirmative model, yeah. no matter what age. Now, when I first read that, I was like, oh yeah, no matter what age. And then I read further and I was like, oh no, they really mean no matter what age. Now, maybe there are less intense affirmative models, certainly like some, some clinicians, Diane Aronsaft comes to mind, who, who kind of, you know, who spoke about how like, you know, w onesies could could be a, a gendered communication, for example. Yeah, like I ripping think, off the onesie, right. And making it Turning a skirt. Turning it into a dress, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a gendered affirm a, a communication. And no matter what age we affirm, now, yeah. why would a dress equal female would be something somebody like me could push back on? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> who says? But... Yeah, the, the idea of no matter what age is how it has seeped into now schools and a whole mindset, as in not only is the client the expert of themselves, the child is the expert of themselves, the infant is the expert of themselves, the very, very distressed, traumatized with four different conditions that are, are, are deeply impacting their way and not, you know, not allowing them to have insight, for example, that is still affirmed. So it doesn't yeah. matter what age they are and it doesn't matter what other mental health challenges they have. Yeah. It is still yeah. affirmed the, the person in front. That is a very, very, what would I say? I would say reckless way to approach vulnerable people and very young people. That's where I really push back and say, oh, no, no, we, we, we have a duty of care. We have responsibility. And sometimes when somebody comes to me, they are highly vulnerable and it would be reckless and I would say inappropriate for me to take what they say at face value because people can say really extraordinary things and you know like I'm a, I'm a great fan of Fritz Perls one of the great psychologists and he used to say what's going on now what's really going on mm. so he was more like oh no you know you say this and I say that and you've heard me say a hundred times I see a client and they come in and they're talking about their husband for the first 10 weeks and then they start talking about how they're drinking vodka every night do, mm. do you know that's common that's common yeah. like that yeah. they you know they swing from what what they say just for people who don't know who haven't been to therapy often what you be, bring to therapy at the beginning yeah. you're testing you're very understandably text testing the therapist to see if you can trust them with your deepest thoughts so you test them with a few starter offers to see how they respond. You don't you do it unconsciously. You're not thinking of this, but you're figuring out if you can go to the places that you might want to go. And then over time, you, you, you know, peel the onion and you start actually revealing your really deepest, darkest, difficult thoughts. But if it's just taken at face value and it's, there's no kind of idea that there could be big, big things yet to come. I, I, I lose faith in the process. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a problem even outside of this gender thing. Like the, the, the model of therapy that is most commonly practiced, especially when insurance is involved here in the oh, US, yeah. is like a six session kind of model. Like the person comes in, session one, you establish therapeutic goals. So what that means is that you also are taking 
directly at face value the presenting problems that the client is bringing to you. And it may be that those are legitimate problems, but what we believe from doing more kind of long-term therapy is like, those are usually a problem, but like underneath the iceberg, there are maybe bigger kind of fundamental patterns of how this person's living their life that's creating this or that thing popping up in the surface. So like, if you have this belief that like, therapy is supposed to establish goals on day one, and in six sessions, like get the person to their goal or 12 sessions or 16 sessions or whatever. It also follows that if you are working with, quote, yeah. gender diverse and nonconforming people, session one, establish like what's the problem and let's get there. Like, let's right. just get there. So I don't think that this is a unique like I do understand why there's some aspects of gender medicine, like the absolute silencing of debate, the dogmatism the extreme um, stakes being so high with the medical interventions, like obviously that's different. But in terms of how therapy is conducted, this has become pretty commonplace that you go to therapy, you say, here are my problems. And the therapist says, okay, those are exactly what we're going to work on. It's almost like a mechanic or something like, yeah, it's really interesting. It's, it's not therapy. There's no sense that there's a deeper underlying meaning there's no sense that this person may not be conscious of what the issues are like even when i'm conducting like consultations with parents what often happens is we start talking about the dynamics with their kid and the conflict but then like by the middle of the consultation we're talking about like much deeper issues with like how does yeah. this family self-regulate their emotions yeah. how does this family their own parental experiences like when they were children yeah. impact how they parent and a lot of parents will be like wow i didn't realize this was going to get so deep and it's like well everything is deep yeah. sometimes um, it's just a cigar but sometimes when you're dealing with like problems that keep coming up that are really huge and like family shattering it is going to be deep it's not going to be like a simple solution and very often clients say i didn't think we'd land here I didn't yeah. expect yeah. where we went. I just didn't think it was good. That's not where, that wasn't my narrative. And then you think, yeah, we're really getting to places. We're getting to places in their mind. Now, I wonder, did therapy of the old days feel like a gotcha? You know, the clever guy in the back and yeah. somebody was lying on the couch and it's like, oh, I see, you know, it, maybe it felt like that. And so they turned it around to kind of just whatever you say goes. But I suppose what has happened with affirmative therapy is it's come in and it feels really positive. It feels really inarguable. Of course you affirm, of course you give people agency, of course you respect everything they want to say. It yeah. feels like it's an, a political motivation. It's like, it feels like almost customer service, whatever the client says is right, yeah. if you follow me. And that's where I would go back to my version of necessary, but not sufficient. It's like very pleasant, very pleasant, but not necessarily good for you. And so that's why so many people are reluctant to kind of give out about their therapeutic experience. They say she was lovely. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah well, she would be. OK, I, I do want to try to identify some of the underlying assumptions because this will help us. Oh, yeah. You help me with that. Like, look at the <laughs> I'm bringing it off. <laughs> the way this plays out. Okay, so I think one underlying assumption is that, well, it's it's hard because it's so deeply tied in with all of this jargon, you know? Okay. But like, one assumption is that there's this internal state of self, uh -huh. which is now being called gender identity, and that it exists independently. Yeah of other parts of the person. Mm -hmm. So I think that explains some things we hear a lot, which is like parents will say to the clinician, you know, I'm concerned that my daughter's a lesbian, but she's feeling uncomfortable with her same sex attraction. And that's why she's doing this or feeling this way. And they will say those two things are separate. Or a detransitioner will in hindsight, remember their therapy sessions and say, um, I told my therapist about all of my childhood abuse, but my therapist said that is that you can't be made trans by your abuse. So like the belief is that there's this sense of what a person is as trans or what whatever, and that that's totally independent from anything else. So it's not impacted 
by other things. And I think the reason that belief exists is because this is a non-pathologizing perspective. We're okay. supposed to think there's nothing about somebody having a gender identity that doesn't match their sex, which is in any way <laughs> like not compatible with living as a person. Like it's it's totally the same thing as just preferring to wear pink versus green shirts, you know, like it's the same thing as having a preference about pancakes versus eggs. It's a yeah. totally neutral aspect of the self. Yeah, I was just imagining being an affirmative clinician. And I was just imagining, so, you know, the client says something that I know and they know, key point, they know and I know, isn't quite true. Because we all know what it's like to kind of bluster. And to say, I hate my mother. You know, she has just persecuted me since the day I was born. Da, 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 da. And you know, and they know, and we all know, the room knows almost, the table knows, that it's, yeah. it's venting and it's bluster. And you know, mm. sometimes it's true, but in another context, we do know this. And how I would, how, how uncomfortable I would feel as a therapist to, to nod, I would feel it's very disrespectful to my client to nod along without at some point bringing it around to, you know, yeah, I, I can see you're so angry with your mother. I can see you're so angry. And there's so many other emotions mixed up in that. I, I don't know how I could refrain from saying it, but there's a reason why they are. And you touched it, well, you, you explained it earlier, which is basically there's a big stick hitting you saying, Educate yourself. This is your bias. Yes. This is your yes. bias, you transphobic yes. bigot. <laughs> Go yes. and do another course. And yes. that seems to have, there's something about that. And I, I remember somebody was talking to me about recently about, well, who are all these therapists? Why are they so bad? And I'm like, I wonder, is there a certain type of personality who goes into counseling where they maybe they don't like conflict or maybe they're just so desperate maybe they were huge people pleasers but we're so desperate to keep everything pleasant or something very far yeah. from the freud vibe of yeah emotion. i don't know but i'd feel so uncomfortable as a therapist if this uh, uh, an untruth entered the room and i allowed it to stay there yeah. and allowed it to, to continue that would be very hard well, I think um, oh, it's so complicated. But have I moved um, you off the underlying assumptions? No, yes, in I, I want to touch on this. Opinion. I mean, yeah. that's that's probably the biggest one. I, I mean, okay, yeah. let's stick with that, and then I'll come back to this point. Yeah, Innate I, gender I, identity. I was like this, and then, true. and also, um, all the things that are transphobia and bias. Like you touched on oh, that just yeah. now. All the things, all, all the things all that dissent, are all disagreement to this person's thought is actually some form of transphobia, lack of education, bias. Yes. It couldn't be that the client is telling something that's not quite accurate to their to theirs to their narrative. That the client is kidding themselves and so it could not be yeah. that that is my bias. I can be wrong at all times. The client mm -hmm. has to be right at all times. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. No wonder this isn't written down anywhere. You <laughs> <laughs> rip it to pieces. <laughs> I mean, it is written down places. That's what's so shocking. Like, you don't get it. You don't. It's quite hard. You, you get kind of this is the approach and all this. It's very hard to get the document that you say these are this is it. Well, I'll tell you what, like I have a, a really close person in my life who um, at work has encountered a lot of adult male to female transitioners that she works really closely with and finds her, her mind is in a scramble sometimes. Um, but, you know, the way she has talked about it is like a relief that we can talk honestly about it. But she's so bewildered and she's just like, I, how can I judge? I have no idea what it's like to be that person. Mm -hmm. So I think like people like me and you, 
We work really intimately with a lot of people who struggle with gender dysphoria. So the the, the experience of gender dysphoria has become much more familiar to us. Yeah. I mean, and also we're therapists. So like yeah. we're used to sitting across the table from somebody with extreme distress and trying yeah. to understand that experience, right? But I think like if you, if you are a certain type of, of person in therapy and you feel like, wow, this whole trans thing is so novel and unusual and strange. I need a special technique. And like, I, I don't remember where we were, but I was talking about this recently. Like every now and then in therapy, I'll encounter a, a, a challenge with a client that feels really foreign and scary to me. And my like instinctive reaction is I have to research the technique for this. <laughs> Yeah. And then I'll catch myself and I'll go, okay, okay, hold on. This is making me uncomfortable. Yes. What is it? Where, where is the like basic human level questions here? Like what's going on beyond the confusing aspects of this? And like, you know, in psychology, we often have things that spin off in these directions. Like, you know, there are some people who are really into like, the kind of neuroscience aspect of it. And there's all these like light therapies and neuro something or oh, other yeah. therapies where you put yeah, a hat yeah. on your head and like, there's all these uber complicated scientifically sounding explanations for things. But like, I think there's a place for that. But like, as a therapist, my job is like, what's the human problem happening here? Me too. Don't get too spun up with the details. When I was a new therapist, when I first became a therapist, I was mad about my techniques. I, I look back, I hope my enthusiasm and my massive, massive commitment to each client carried on some level because I cringe when I think back with my little techniques. Oh, I have a technique for you. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, me too. Thinking, I'm sure some of them must have said, oh my God, man, like just zip it with your technique. <laughs> Like, and listen to me, woman. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I, I, yeah. it, there's, within a technique is an assumption that the, the problem is fixable. And within the affirmative model, arguably is the, there's a, because it's centered on gender identity and because all dissent is either transphobia or lack of education or bias or something, bigotry, one of those, Therefore, um, this is a very fixable problem and it's going to be non-binary or it's going to be medical transition or it's going to be social transition. There's a kind of a, a presumption within this that there is a, a place to go. Do you and, know what I mean? And that the problem is societal oppression. Like over and over and over in these documents, the problem is bias, transphobia and societal oppression. So yeah. the, the fix is for you to proudly and loudly as the clinician align with this kind of political philosophy about identity and like double down with your client and like get activisty. And all resistance is suspect and all yes. questioning thoughts, all kind of, I wonder, all of that, all curiosity. Yes. It's frightening. It's, it's just frightening. And what, what I find amazing really is, I, I don't find it amazing now I've studied, I think the positivity, um, the positivity culture that took over really from the noughties onwards. And do you remember, because uh, I've studied this quite a bit, quite books that kind of traces all back. And remember the secret, Rhonda Byrne? And yes, and yes. And you just had to manifest. Yes. And um, that was, you know, Oprah Winfrey was quite into it. And that whole idea of like, you just don't do negativity. You just do that. Now at the very same time as people were talking about the secret, I remember a client ringing me up. She didn't become a client, but I remember somebody ringing me up to say, do you agree with the secret? Because I could only go and see you if you did. And I was like, wow, this is really coming into a whole, this was back then. And, and you know, there's a resurgence of this interest in manifestation. I, I was listening oh yeah. to somebody talking about this the other other day. This is like popping back up as a big thing now. But and keep going. I, I know, like neuroscience, kind of came to a kind of a a, a, a shrieking halt in around the early noughties because they realized the more you think of something, the easier it is to think it. So the, you know, the more you worry, the easier it is to worry. The more you 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 have well-being, the easier it is. Like your brain gets into mental habits, and for neuroscience, mm -hmm. that was very interesting. Hence the growth of the, the 
positive movement so they thought oh oh i see that's what we have to do we have to think more positively we'll get into good positive mental habits we hear that phrase all the time yeah the well-being industry it all moved in at the very same time as the whole well-being positive thoughts all this the affirmative was starting to get you know get like you know starting to grow starting to start Mm. walking and within like 2010 2012 it was there you know what i mean it 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 had arrived in and it's it it wasn't out of keeping when people try to figure out what's going on you have to think it was a confluence of events this positive kind of affirming thought process was in counseling it was we were very ripe for the picking to be affirmative therapists Yeah, I mean, I think if you combine that positive thinking with the social justice and advocacy piece, you have like a perfect recipe for this type of therapeutic approach. Yeah, Um, Um, and it's seeped into, let's say, schools, and we will probably do more on schools and kind of the affirmative attitude, like, let's say, elsewhere. But that has seeped in and it's part of the positivity movement. And there is such a phrase as toxic positivity. And there is such a phrase as cruel optimism where you you nod along smilingly while somebody says, I'm going to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, a famous singer and they won't be a famous singer. And, you know, it's not going to happen. But cruel optimism is allowing somebody, you know, go on stage and just think it'll work out for you, because if you wish hard enough, it'll come true. It's, It's cruel to allow somebody to do that and invest everything in it. On some level, a good friend or a, a decent therapist will start to bring in more critical thinking into you mm. because it, it will help them. That's what I think. It's funny that you say that because I'm now thinking about like my experience in the dance world and how many like beginner dancers have to start somewhere and then you see them three years later and they're like fabulous. Um, but maybe it's different with singing. But I mean, I get what you're saying. Like you're basically saying to egg someone on in a dream that actually has tangible harm consequences. Yeah, because you would say, because what you're saying is so right. We've had, we've read a million biographies of people who everybody said no to them and then they ended up being right. a hero. That's the yes. culture we're in. But then there's a huge amount of people who, who thought they were going to be a basketball player and they didn't become one. And it was yeah. actually devastating. And, you know, somebody who thought they were going to be a footballer and they didn't become one. So for, for all the people that succeeded, there's a whole other people who thought, well, you know, I had such a dream and I didn't Now, how to marry that. I don't know, but I do think it's it's a, an issue in our culture that if we tell anybody you can be anything mm-hmm. you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think. Work. But some people yeah. and, and I think, you know, when we think of the person's overall life, when I, to kind of go back to this question of like the dancer or the basketball player, like yeah. how much of your energy and resources are you sinking into something and for how long and are you seeing that. any incremental progress? And is yeah. this coming at the detriment of other possibilities for your life? Yeah. And that kind of That's either or is the key, right? Yeah. And I, I want to yeah. touch on just for a few minutes, like, how does this affirmative model, if it's being taught, like, you know, something that we often are, we're often contacted by people who are in training as therapists who are being taught this affirmative model, or like someone who works in a group practice and they're being given trainings on this model. I want to talk about what that does to the clinician who maybe is unsure or having some hesitation because this ties into the whole conversion therapy idea, which is like any practice Mm. outside of this kind of bizarre social justice oriented and dogmatic belief in gender identity is at risk of being considered conversion therapy. And that almost creates a funnel where like the only people willing to do the work are the people who are the most bought into affirmative therapy. Like you and I are kind of oddballs. I mean, we're growing, Geta is growing. There are lots of brilliant clinicians who we know who are doing, you know, starting to work in this field. But there's also a, a much bigger population of therapists who are like, I don't know about this affirmative model that I was taught. I'm not sure I could do that. And they are opting out. So many therapists that I know 
have said, nah, I, I can't, I can't work in this field because I'm yeah. being offered one, one approach, which is to affirm everything. And it's everything I don't stand for as a therapist. So therefore I'm not working in it. And what has yeah. happened therefore is only the real evangelists are left mm -hmm. who, and I think you cannot be an affirmative model unless you fundamentally believe in gender identity theory. And you can't really be, sorry, affirmative clinician, you can't really be a, an affirmative yeah. clinician either, unless you buy into the idea of your dissent is bias and education, uh, needing of education. Because if you have any respect for your dissent, well, then you can't be affirmative. So you have, yes. it needs complete yes. buy-in. Yes, it's totalizing in your yeah. worldview. That's yeah. what makes it so reminiscent of high control groups. It's a totalizing world view. Nowhere in any of these affirmative documents did I read, and I'm sure there are some out there, like for example, we know some affirmative clinicians who will willingly say, sometimes very complicated mental health issues can present as gender dysphoria and transitions not appropriate for that person. Like there are clinicians that call themselves affirmative who are m more careful and thoughtful, but like, the philosophy of affirmative therapy, especially as it begins to incorporate this kind of social justice perspective, by definition is totalizing. And it reminds me of high control groups and their kind of manifestos about, you know, some spiritual like essence of a person and all the opposition to our group is because those people are evil or bad or whatever. Like it's totalizing. It, it leaves no room for curiosity or various opinions. It is this way or the highway. Yeah, I know you like, uh, well, I know you've said a few times, you know, we can't, you know, we can't dismiss them all and we can't tie them all with the same brush. And some affirmative cl clinicians seem to be very thoughtful. And I'm like, yeah, so that means if they are thoughtful, and I think there are some out there, that means they believe fundamentally in gender identity theory, but they also believe in the concept of some people can get it wrong. Right. But okay. they're also ostracized by the most ardent activist types of clinicians, like the people that I'm referring to, like the Laura Edwards Leapers, the Erica Andersons of the world. Um, we may not agree on everything, but I do think they have a lot of integrity and they're operating from a reasonable place, which is like some people can get confused about their gender for reasons other than what would make transition beneficial. But like they've been basically called transphobic bigots and they've pretty much been ostracized. Right. And, and we talked about this when we had Joe and Alistair on. There are people within WPATH who are dissenting voices like I think. I think what happens, though, is it becomes really challenging to hold these two things at the same time, which is like there is this innate thing called gender identity. It could be fluid. It could be non-binary. It could shift and change. And that's not anything pathological, while at the same time holding the developmental model, which you often talk about, which is that yeah. gender dysphoria can come about from other reasons. So it's like, well, which is it? Like, how can you have both? I think you kind of have to pick one. I I kind of think that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they don't know, work together. I think an affirmative clinician who also questions somebody's gender identity, they're not a pure affirmative or certainly if they are, they you would think you could nearly add another word to it, a kind of uh a thoughtfully affirmative or something like that. But one thing I want to say before we come to the end, I'm conscious of the time, is that um I've noticed in yet another concept creep that's happened is because um, I was on Benjamin Boyce there a few, few weeks ago with Eliza Mondegreen. It was a really interesting yeah, conversation. Yeah. Somewhere in the middle of it, I said something like, well, banning affirmative. I don't know what I said. I think either affirmative care or affirmative therapy seems excessive. Now, what I meant was I must get onto him and say it. <laughs> I'm just plastered somewhere. But what I meant was affirmative talk therapy, banning talk therapy seemed to me to be excessive. But yeah. in the concept creep, I've now realized now they're calling affirmative care equals puberty blockers. Do you know mm. what I mean? That mm -hmm. It's moved into a new, as usual, nothing stays the same. So what yeah. I thought is affirmative care is affirmative therapy, somebody nodding along, which can be insidious and it has a huge amount of issues. But banning it felt a bit sledgehammer to crack a nut kind of t context but actually 
it it can it can be basically a euphemism for puberty blockers, mastectomies, the whole lot. That's under the banner yeah. of affirmative yeah. care now. Yeah. Christ. And the, again, the, the concept just keeps shifting. I think like if if you found like one of these obscure papers like 30 years ago about affirmative oh, yeah. care for gender nonconforming children, it would have meant one thing. But I think what it looks like today in the way most university systems and medical systems and, you know, clinics are rolling it out. It's a really different animal, even from the questionable well, affirmative care from a few decades ago. I know our listeners are incredibly erudite and they they know a lot. If anybody could find, I would really love to find the first context, the first time it was written. Do you know what I mean? The first kind of allusion to affirmative care, both in just in the therapeutic sense and then in the gender sense, that whole I've just not been able to find it. I think it's Aaron Saft. I feel like yeah. it's Aaron Saft. No, I, I, I thought it was before that. Are you saying like she, she brought out a book in 2013, as far as I know. But are you yeah, saying way like... before that, that, that she just, she, that's very interesting. You might be right. I might be. Yeah. You know, memory is subjective and it can be very fuzzy. So like I'm telling myself this now and I can build a story in my head, but I could easily be wrong. So I don't and, know. And I could be affirmative and just say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would make me feel really good about myself, Stella. So I would love that. <laughs> okay, so I think we have tossed this around enough for today. We'll probably yeah. come back to this, but it was yeah. it's important. Very. All right. Well, I'll see you next time, Stella. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.